0: This is ASEN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit ASEN.AC.uk. Uh, Arthur Waldron is the Lauder uh, Professor of International Relations in the Department of History at the University of Pennsylvania. His specialities are the history of China and Eurasia, and the history of war and violence. On these topics, Arthur has written three books in English, edited four more books, including two in Chinese. He is the co-editor of the Chinese Civil War volumes of Mao's Road to Power, and also co-editor of Volume 4 of the forthcoming Cambridge History of War. He is currently working on the Chinese volume for the Blackwell's Oxford series, Peoples of the World. In addition to these academic achievements and responsibilities, he's a regular consultant to uh, government, I assume it the US government, having served <laughs> on the congressionally mandated US-China Economic and Security Review Commission, testifies regularly to both House and Senate committees. He's also served as an American representative in track two meetings involving Korea, China, Taiwan, Japan and Russia, so he may be called back to prevent an outbreak of nuclear war. Um, And he's going to speak today on the topic of nationalism and revolution in China, the debate over
1: how to fight the anti-Japanese war, 1937 to 1945. Thank you you very much, John, and good afternoon, esteemed colleagues. And let me first say, uh, very grateful I and my wife are for the extraordinary hospitality that uh, LSE has extended uh, to us in the arrangements and every detail. It's just been uh, quite wonderful compared to many academic jobs I've been on. Let me say by way of introduction that it was I was not long into my career as a wasn't a career, but as a graduate student in Chinese history, reading book after book, uh, that it began to strike me that the phrase rising nationalism was the universal explainer in Western literature about China. And I decided to look at nationalism. I did a little initial work, I published an article on nationalism long ago, but I decided frankly that the general question of nationalism was simply too hard. So I decided to focus on the case of China. But it is true that you will find rising nationalism in books about China, uh, starting uh, in the dealing from the 1850s right up to the present. Although the phrase. Chinese nationalism makes a sudden and rather abrupt appearance in the West for the first time in 1925, for reasons that I have tried to explain in the book that was published almost 20 years ago. Uh, I take a, an indirect approach, in other words, to nationalism, I look at a piece of evidence and try to see what it has to say. And today I'm going to talk about the tension between revolutionary ideas uh, and Nationalism in China, the war of resistance against Japan, and it's known in Chinese as the war of resistance against Japan. Years and it struck me as I was coming over that, of course, in Russia, the resistance to Napoleon was the great was the Fatherland War, and the resistance to Hitler was the great Fatherland War. And I think that this is uh, a significant difference because one of the questions is whether the resistance is nationalistic in the sense that it has in mind some kind of a nation state that is to be realized or whether the resistance is to a particular foe. And my focus this evening is the city of Wuhan. From June 11th through October 7th, 1938, one of the greatest battles of this eight year war raged over what was then the second largest city. It's a vast inland metropolis and by the time the battle was over, 250,000 Chinese were dead and 70,000 Japanese perished. And thereafter, the Chinese army slowly retreated up the Yangtze River, finally, to Chongqing, beyond the Yangtze Gorges. Not a good place in which to fight the Japanese, but also a place in which to hurl the fights because he would simply refuse to surrender. Now on March 8, 1938, the young Christopher Hiselud and his traveling companion W. H. Auden, who were then on what they called a journey to a war, agreed, quote, We would rather be in Wuhan at this moment than anywhere else on earth. Auden had already visited Spain in the Civil War, and he picked up Isherwood in Berlin and then they set off to China. And the questions in the Spanish Civil War and the questions in China, at least in their minds, were quite similar. And they had to do with how important for victory was the social uh, social revolution and the social liberation of all classes. uh, Was war a matter of... uh, Equipment and divisions, or was it the case that a an aroused populace could defeat a better armed enemy, um, no matter what? And in this concept, uh, we detect the influence of an idea which is traceable back to the French Revolution of the Mass. 16 August 1793, which basically transformed the French forces from being their usual scum and sweepings who could not be trusted to fight except under brutal discipline, which is what was characteristic of most European countries at that time, into the French revolutionary armies, um, which were animated by uh, boldness and, brave and uh, uh, courage and a reliable Send people off to do reconnaissance and they would come back. And the reason that this had worked was widely believed was that the French Revolution had unleashed the powerful nationalism of the ordinary French citizen, which had previously been suppressed by the autocratic control of the monarchy. And in the 1930s, many people believed the same, that the defeat of fascism was going to be part war-fighting and part-revolution. Uh, and they applied this analysis to the Spanish Civil War. The great symbol, of course, was the parallel drawn between Madrid and Spain, uh, which was untaken for a long time, and the attack on Wuhan, where there was a belief that if the same sorts of mobilizational tactics were used it would be possible, uh, perhaps, to hold the city indefinitely. Now, Franco, after he returned from Africa, initially attacked Madrid, and this attack either failed or was abandoned. And thereafter, he led his troops through Spain, fighting the Republican forces and liquidating tens of thousands of leftists, suspected of real, while the capital Madrid stood unconquered. And some thought, it was uncommonly Uh, As many of you know, uh, some wag set up a fully set table and chairs in the Gran Vida with a place card that said "reserved for General Mola, Duke Mola, who was the commander of Franco's forces," and posters proclaimed, using a traditional name for the city, "The Bear of Madrid will destroy fascism." The lesson of the Spanish Civil War seemed to be that. Mobilized population using relatively simple weapons uh, could defeat stronger and better armed conventional forces. And Madrid was not the only example. The Battle of Guadalajara uh, in 1937 saw lightly armed guerrillas destroy Italian tank columns that were not unlike those the Japanese employed. And this seemed to confirm this idea. Well, as long as would arrive, it, A battle was taking shape that could be compared in a way to Madrid. Uh, In fact, they left before it began and and they were both safely in America by 1939. But the forces on both sides of this battle were, Chinese and Japanese, were conventional. The Chinese leader Chiang Kai-shek and his German advisor Alexander von Falkenhausen were convinced that the only way to defeat the well-equipped Japanese was to have well-equipped Chinese. And it has to be recalled that the Japanese had weapons, well, in some cases, were superior to anything that we had. The Mitsubishi uh, Zero fighter, for instance, was better than its American or British counterparts. And for a long time, the only way to defeat it was the complex uh, dogfighting tactics. Now. The propelance of in China was that John and his advisor were correct, that um, a modern, up-to-date, <coughs> uh, state-of-the-art Chinese army was what China needed. But there was division on the left about how to fight the war of resistance against Japan. Mao Zedong was much more of an internationalist and social revolutionary than is often recognized and he opposed using his Red Army in head-to-head combat with the regular Japanese Army. He preferred guerrilla operations, which tend to be morale orders and relatively low casualties. And he very much had his eye on a post-war showdown with Chiang Kai-shek, but his generals disagreed and wanted full participation in the war, and this brought them into conflict with Mao, and although this conflict hasn't been much studied, I've also wondered whether some of the um, very, very personal attacks that took place during the Cultural Revolution did not go back to disagreements about the war against Japan. Well, the point to stress is that the idea of popular nationalism revolutionary nationalism mobilized by the communists during the war, somehow peasant nationalism led in an almost linear fashion to their victory in the Civil War. (coughs) This is a very influential idea for a good 50 years since 1962 when Chalmers Johnson published Peasant Nationalism and Communist Power. Johnson has been thoroughly kicked around for this book. Uh, in fact, it's it's a rather good, but one that reaches too far. Now, the war in China was unquestionably uh, national, and in that sense, it was unlike the internal wars for power that had plagued China since the end of the Qing dynasty. But of course, the Spanish Civil War was also internal. And I was thinking by myself: who were the nationalists? Where was nationalism? Spanish Civil War. I mean, you had Nationalists and the Republicans arguably both patriotic, etc., etc. Aren Isherwood had an interview with Madame Jankashek, and she, charming, she was a very charming woman. She said to them, We've told the communists, as long as we fight for China, we are all friends. And the two men had a not uncommon reaction, which was no doubt, but what does she mean by China? Is this is, is this struggle to be a mere coolie's war <coughs> fought to make the country safe, the rule of the Song dynasty, the small and all powerful planet bankers, to which Madame Jiang herself belonged? Can Chiang Kai shek with his long record of communist suppression ever form a permanent alliance with men like Mao Zedong and Joe and I, whose whole lives have been uh, devoted toward their struggles. It's certainly hard to believe. Well, Mao Zedong in, in 1937 uh, published an article called or G series of lectures, it gave an article on the track of war. He said, among other things, and the interesting thing about uncontracted wars, there's no theory of victory. In other words, that never explains how the guerrillas in the end are going to defeat the uh, conventional forces. But he does say, uh, if a strenuous effort is made to secure all the necessary conditions, and by the necessary conditions he means the uh, initiative and enthusiasm of the full people, Uh, Disasters such as the loss of Nanjing and so forth uh, are going to be repeated unless uh, we let the people rise up. Then he says China will have her Madrid in places where those conditions, mass mobilization, are present. But so far China has not had a Madrid, Uh, but from now on we should work hard to create some. But it all depends on the conditions. The most fundamental of these is extensive uh, political globalization of the army and the people. Now, one of the most interesting foreign <coughs> visitors to Iran during, the, uh, during this period was uh, the distinguished English author, the political commentator, Freedom*, Utley, uh, who was best known for her career in the United States after 1939 when she became a very anti communist, But she started out um, King's College London, and then she was a fellow of London School of Economics until 1928. Uh, and in 1928, she joined the British Communist Party. Uh, at the time of the Battle of Wuhan, she was 40 years old, uh, tough and experienced traveler. And I just have to quote her description of how she packed. She got her portable typewriter, and then she got a single case into which she put a bottle of scotch, a card of cigarettes, and a change of stockings. Uh, But she wrote a classic account of China War, published by Faber and Faber. During this period, they published lots of stuff about these wars. She was there for much of the battle, and she utterly rejected Zhang's conventional approach, uh, as she put it, to awaken the people to national consciousness and mobilize them to take an active part in winning the war means also awakening them to consciousness of their own grievances, to resentment of the privileges and material advantages of the bureaucracy, and the dangerous hatred of the landowners and usurers and employers who exploit them. The better spirits of the woman die are not afraid of this, but the grafters, the rich, the lazy, and the inefficient fear the people perhaps more than the Japanese. And she summed this up by saying. That the reason that John was unwilling to unleash this punitive latent force um, in China was above all because the more reactionary women were up as power and the authorities are nervous of the people. We have to fight the war, we have to keep the social order intact. Now, Audrey is referring here to <coughs> a phenomenon of rural unrest. Uh, And just I have to say in passing that this idea that the Chinese countryside is constantly simmering with oppressed farmers wanting to overthrow landlords and so forth is, um, I think one can put a question mark there. Um, If you do a close reading, for instance, of William Hinton's three volume trilogy on land reform, what you discover is that the, the, the communists judged class consciousness of the person by whether they were willing to step forward and start struggle meeting and punch the landlord in the face, and they say, well, that person has developed class consciousness. After the communists took power, it turned out that a lot of these people simply liked to punch people in the face. And <laughs> the Chinese delicately put it to insult women. And, uh, the result was that lots of these people, who are described in Volume 1 of him by Volume 3 are, have been given desk jobs uh, far away uh, from the people. One thing that was puzzling to Free up and others was the fact that the Communists in uh, Wuhan didn't seem to pay much attention to the actual uh, working masses there. No one seemed to be uh, pressing demands on their behalf. But the fact that Madrid had resisted Franco's siege since November 36 gave heart to the nationalist defenders. And Joan Lai, who was the communist representative of the coalition government, took her on a walk around the lines and said that the rule on to could be held for a very long time, perhaps permanently, if the strategy of luring and flanking the Japanese forces were adopted and advantage taken of the hills, defiles, and lakes. Well, let me just say a little bit about the communist side of this because it's really quite complex. A war of national resistance in which the communists want to participate but they don't want to risk their main forces. Mine wasn't really a nationalist, at least, at least pure and simple. I mean, it's very hard to say who's a nationalist. But when he launched his disastrous Great Leap Forward in 1957, he distributed a number of utopian volumes from the Chinese tradition. And he also had a slogan called Three No's. The Three No's were no government, no country, no family. And somebody who believes in no government, no country, no family is probably not a. True nationalist. Now Mao's lack of conventional nationalism brought him into conflict with some of his closest colleagues. who were we simply outraged that the Japanese were on the uh, on the soil of China, and this surfaced in 1937 at something called the Luocheng Conference. Uh, Tony Seich writes that there seem to be some mild disagreements with Mao's views from military personnel such as Zhu and Pong Duhuai. The interesting thing about Seich's work um, is that he has a very thick book on the rise of the Communist Party. And I read it, and I noticed that he didn't use the word nationalism once in the entire book. So I ran into him, and I asked him about this. He was surprised that i noticed it. And then he said it was an intentional omission, uh, because he did not think that nationalism was necessary to explain the rise of the Congress, that bureaucratic and military politics were enough. <coughs> uh, the late ruling, Gomez has a perhaps more substantial account of this meeting. Mao argued that during the war against the Japanese invaders, <coughs> the CCP had, in fact, a second war to fight with the KMT. Hence, the party's military units should operate cautiously front line against the Japanese, relying mainly on guerrilla warfare and expanding their bases behind the enemy lines to conserve their strength for future anti-KMT struggles. Don't lie, Hongdo-Hai, Zhang tao and most of the military leaders argued for an all-out war effort against Japan, entirely unambiguous adherence to the United Front policies. And for the time being, Mao's opinions were not accepted until 1940 or so, the A-Food Army, which was one of the two divisions out of roughly 200 Chinese divisions in the war, fought hard. Uh, perhaps the best example of this conflict was the year 19, July 1940, when Peng Ngokhuai, one of the great generals of the People's Republic, was given overall command of something over 100 regiments offensive, in which 200,000 communist regulars and 200,000 guerrillas wreaked havoc on the uh, Japanese logistical system. Uh, The Japanese struck back with great viciousness, uh, which alienated a lot of people, and Pong was recalled to Yan'an, where he was not praised, but he was condemned for this military achievement, and he was called an empiricist, whatever that means, (laughs) and um, he was, Mao ordered that he should be criticized for 40 days for the failings campaign, he was not allowed to apply, and from 42 until 45, he stayed in Yan'an, and it's said that he supported Mao very closely. I can't help wondering how this sort of general's general took to being grounded in Yan'an at a time when the Japanese were basically go wherever they wanted to China. I think he must have been frustrated. He was criticized in the Cultural Revolution uh, and died. His rehabilitation was signaled in 1992 when the history of defenses was published with Deng Xiaoping's calligraphy on the cover. And in fact, the communist contribution to the um, war against Japan is actually quite small. I have at home the textbook that is used in the Chinese military Japanese, the political warfare textbook on the history of PLA. that lists all the battles um of PLA. And the figure from nineteen thirty-seven to nineteen forty-five with battles is only is nine battles that are listed. The Chinese communists themselves claim only nine battles uh, against the Japanese. Well let me note that the parallels with Madrid were ultimately misleading. Madrid fell on March 26, 1939, uh, Wuhan had already fallen in 1938, October 25th, and Franco had very little difficulty in taking the city. Uh, just why this is <coughs> is a good question, but if you read Paul Preston's uh, biography of Franco, which is, I a, think, a, a monument of scholarship, um, he argues that the Spanish insurgent leader, General Franco, probably could have taken Madrid earlier if he really put his mind on it and unified all his troops, but that he decided it would be easier to rule Spain if he had already purified the population. So he traveled all around Spain, as I've said, killing and liquidating potential political enemies, and then at the very end of this, with Madrid isolated, and the, and the people the plans, as it were, uh, he took the city. Wuhan fell in 1938. Stephen McKinnon, who has written a wonderful book about the city during the war, there was a sort of a artistic revival, there was a sort of super political nationalism or spirit of resistance. There were all sorts of interesting things about uh, the time of Wuhan. He said that a Madrid effect could be felt in China. In which morale rose even after the fall of Wuhan, as he wrote in the end, Wuhan did not escape the fate of the other major inland cities, and it was in ruins by the end of the war. But for a while, uh, and and but for a while, it was it was celebrated as a symbol of genuine uh, resistance. Although after the communist triumph. Uh, there was an eclipse of the memory of this particular battle. And one of the things I've written about is the degree to which this eclipse of World War II and who actually fought and who actually didn't fight is, is now an issue in China. And if you go to the museum at the Marco Polo Bridge, uh, there are exhibits about non-communist generals and heroes and all the and there's a figure for how many tanks the communists destroyed in the war, and it's, it's something like six. You know, I, I wrote it down, you know, on a closet slip the way you do, knowing that you're never going to use it. And uh, I, I doubt it might be eight, but it's a very small number of tanks destroyed, considering how long uh, the war was. Well, what can this? tell you, both of you who are students of Nationalism and not of China. The first point I'd make is that in China, as in other countries, it's a mistake to imagine that some sort of latent, unifying force is inherent in the people, waiting only uh, to be awakened. Uh, the war unified the Chinese in opposition to a clear enemy, but in the fact, that there were three different competing Chinese governments throughout the whole war. Uh, the Chinese political elite never really um, unified, even though the Japanese always had more divisions in China than they had in the rest of the theaters. And the idea of National Awakening, which had figured very much in talk about China, turned out really not, not to be correct. People would fight the enemy, but there was no sense which a vision of a new state emerged. There's a very good book on this by John Fitzgerald, Awakening China, Politics, Culture, and Class in the Nationalist Revolution. Furthermore, the Chinese population is very uh, diverse. Uh, many different dialects are spoken. Identities are local. And a remnant mass in China might have unleashed pure chaos and regional conflict. Uh, the concept of revolutionary nationalism, and the idea of revolution as somehow a precondition for victory and for nationalism and for victory in war, does not work very well for China, particularly in the history of the communist period. Although it was widespread, a widespread belief among nearly everyone that John was not fighting. And that, if only the people could be unleashed, the Japanese would quickly be driven into the sea. Well, 250,000 dead at the Battle of Shanghai and 250,000 dead at the Battle of Wuhan. That's just two battles. That's more than the total membership of the Communist Party. Plus 200 generals killed in the war, Uh, highest-ranking Allied casualty of Chinese generals killed in the war, and really all graduates of the Chinese military academies before the war. Uh, those classes, it's like England in World War I, those those classes just disappeared. Still, uh, there's no question that something that we can call Chinese nationalism exists, has existed, and exists today. And I would say that today, many Chinese neighbors are beginning to feel its breath. But what I would note is that today's nationalism such as the recent anti-Japanese demonstrations is very much a from the top uh, phenomenon. It's turned off and on rather successfully and efficiently by the government. Furthermore, since the Tiananmen Massacre in 1989, the Chinese government has sought consciously to foster nationalistic feeling among the population by so-called patriotic education, which is now a required subject. Chinese schools, and this is really a uh, litany of all the ways in which China has been insulted and how bad foreigners have been. But it was used, it was consciously patriotism, it was consciously adopted as an antidote to the democratic ideas that had gotten loose in 1989. Now what would happen if Chinese popular opinion were genuinely allowed to express itself? Well, I've talked to some people and they say that The popular nationalistic demand to attack Taiwan, to drop nuclear weapons on Japan, etc., would be irresistible. Others argue, and this is my argument, that local grievances, such as those of the farmers, who are perennial victims of Chinese politics, would come forward. You'd have a parliament full of people saying, we've got to have a school, we've got to have a hospital, we've got to have clean water, and so forth. But certainly what we have learned uh, from this Chinese case as from elsewhere, that even powerful, even, even a full invasion of your country by the what Friedrich calls the national and race enemy uh, does not necessarily lead to a unified nationalistic response. And in fact, in the case of China, it led to a long debate about it. what was the best way Uh, to resist this attack. Well, that's what I have to say, and thank you very much.